0: Well, for those who have been going to church for some period of time, it may be possible that the passage that we're going to look at today is very familiar to you. Just like with Christmas, Easter, or Resurrection Sunday as we like to call it, usually has us focus on specific passages that are related to the celebration of the holiday. So even for those who don't come to church for Christmas or Easter, often referred to as CEOs, Christia, or Christmas, Easter only people. Okay, they recognize that there's passages, and you might even be inclined to think that we talk about the same thing week after week, over and over. And to some degree, this is true. Those who tend, attend the church year round, we we never. Uh, it never gets old to talk about the Lord Jesus Christ and the glories of the gospel. Yet as Christians, if we're completely transparent, sometimes due to the hardness of our heart, sometimes due to the deceptive nature of sin and our battles that we take, uh, are engaged in during the week, It is possible that you could show up for a Sunday like today and maybe your heart really isn't focused on Resurrection Sunday. Maybe part of your focus has been diminished. We can all lose our joy. We can all suffer from indifference. Our passion can be not so passionate. And it's my hope Today, that we can take an account that is very familiar to us and see how it can and it should cause our hearts to rejoice. He is risen. He is risen. He is risen. And just as Jonathan sang, it's because he lives. Because he lives, right? I can face tomorrow. I can face tomorrow, and you can face all of eternity. Because he lives. So I want to invite you to open your Bibles up to Matthew chapter 28. And though we read these verses at the beginning of the service, I want us to refresh ourselves with verses 1 through 10. And I'm going to read them again for us. And those will be the focus of our study today. Starting in chapter 1, reading from the New American Standard. It says this in verse 1. Now after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn towards the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning, and his clothing as white as snow. The guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. The angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know... What you are looking for, Jesus who has been crucified, he is not here for he has risen just as he said. Come, see the place where he was lying. Go quickly. Tell the disciples that he has risen from the dead and behold, he is going ahead of you into Galilee and there you will see him. Behold, I have told you. And he left the tomb quickly with fear fear. And great joy, and ran to report to his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and greeted them, and they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. And Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee, and there they will see me. The title of our message today is Rejoicing in the Resurrection. And I want us to consider five details about the resurrection that can encourage our hearts to rejoice. And we want to get started on this right away because it is a big passage. And let's begin our time by focusing on the ladies who were first to go to the graveside beginning in verse 1. It had this to say. Now after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn towards the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene Mary came to look at the grave. It is good to have a grasp of the chronology of the Passion Week to understand passages like this. And if you were here with us at our Good Friday service, we spent the portion of the beginning of that service talking through what the week looked like. You know that Jesus shared a Passover meal with his disciples on Thursday evening. And after the meal, Judas got up and left the table and would later return to betray our Lord. A series of trials took place starting that night, continuing through the night till the next day. And on Friday morning, Jesus would be scourged by the Roman soldiers. Then Pontius Pilate, would, excuse me, after Pontius Pilate ordered that that would be happen, and at the Jews' request, he was handed over to be crucified. After he was confirmed dead, his body was taken down from the cross, and he was placed in the tomb. The Jews were concerned about someone coming to steal his body. And so they requested that Roman soldiers be assigned to watch to make sure that that did not happen. And so Pontius Pilate agreed to the request. And he said, we'll we'll do that, and sent some soldiers to guard the tomb. And it says that he set his seal on the tomb. And we'll talk about what that means a little bit later. The first day of Christ's death was Friday, the second day Saturday, also known as the Sabbath. And so when it says now after the Sabbath it began to dawn towards the first day of the week, it's speaking of Sunday morning. This would also be the third day that Christ referenced. The indication is that these women honored the Sabbath by not walking far to the tomb, and they prepared spices after the Sabbath, and they were coming to anoint Jesus' body. This does seem to indicate a lack of faith. Why? Because they were coming to anoint his body. They expected to find it in the tomb. Two ladies in the account are Mary Magdalene, and the other Mary. Not the mother of Jesus, but the wife of Clopas, and the mother of James and Joseph. Uh, James the lesser, that is. And both of these Marys uh, were lingering by the cross during the crucifixion, and they're mentioned in Matthew 27, 61. And they most likely helped Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, who, and it was Joseph who had requested a high-ranking Jewish official who was able to request the body be taken down from the cross, and it was granted to him. He had wealth, and he provided a tomb for the Lord to be buried in. The ladies have helped Joseph and, and Nicodemus to anoint his body and to prepare his body for burial. And then a stone was rolled over the tomb on friday in john's gospel account it says that nicodemus had used a large quantity of spices at the burial but even so the women may have wanted to bring their own tribute when they were able after the sabbath and just like in our day when someone close to us dies and you go to the funeral service there'll be a lot of flowers right a lot of things that are there to to celebrate that life, but because you love them so much, you want to contribute, right? And so this is really what Mary and Mary are doing. They, though Nicodemus provided a large amount of of of, of anointing um, herbs, and they wanted to bring their own contribution. Death teaches us a lot of life lessons. Nothing is more sobering than losing someone you love. And these ladies, many of Jesus' disciples, they had witnessed while he was doing ministry on this earth, Jesus raised people from the dead. And this happened over the course of his ministry. Now here he lay in the tomb, and the sorrow was nothing like they had experienced, especially after he died such a horrific and painful death. We can be sure, like the disciples, they were numb with their pain in all the things that had transpired in that last 48 hours. So it might seem like a strange question for me to ask, how can this account with these ladies cause our heart to rejoice? Sometimes our experience with pain helps us to appreciate the Lord's provision. Did you grasp that for a moment? Sometimes our experience with pain helps us to appreciate the Lord's provision. What do I mean by this? The Lord understood their grief. And everyone who loved and followed the Lord is deeply sad at this time, and they're grieving. But as we'll see, these two women will soon see Evidence of the resurrection firsthand. What hope could be greater? Yes, they're grieved. Yes, they're hurting. But just as Psalm 34 18 says, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted, he saves those who are crushed in spirit. We see the Lord provide hope throughout the gospel accounts. You'll recall when Lazarus died, right? Did Jesus go right away? No. Waited four days. Four days. And I imagine the grief during that time as Lazarus was officially gone, that it was pretty heavy. But what about, what do you think happened with the hope that the people had when the Lord showed up and made the provision and raised him from the dead after he was gone for four days? You think that had an impact on him? When the disciples were afraid and they were caught. In in a storm, this is another illustration, caught in the storm at sea, who who was it that got up to calm the sea and to calm their fears and to bring hope? Our hearts can rejoice because we have a sovereign and all-powerful God who provides hope, even when things seem dark, even when they seem desperate and they seem bleak. We never know what he has right around the corner for us as it relates to the hope that he is going to provide, the provision that he's going to provide. And we can doubt. And it's, it's, our, it's our human nature to doubt. It's, it's, it's built within us to doubt. And yet God provides hope. He's always working behind the scenes for those who trust in him. And watch what happens as the Lord continues to unfold his faithfulness, his plan in this account. These ladies are about to be blown away with rejoicing, and it starts with the angel's awesome apparition. Our passage sets the stage for the angel's entrance, appearance, and impression in verses two through four. First is entrance. Verse two says, and behold, a severe earthquake had occurred for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. This passage reveals some very practical reasons as to why the angel came, which we'll see. His entrance begins with a severe. This word can also be translated great earthquake. Theologians believe That this earthquake has nothing to do with the reality of the angel coming from heaven, but it has everything to do with the timing of the resurrection. That that's when the resurrection occurred. And in Matthew 27, 54, you may recall at the Lord's death, there was a great earthquake as well. And so they believe that just as the Lord's death caused an earthquake in Matthew 27, 54, how much more would the rejoicing and the divine reality of the Lord's resurrection, caused the earth to tremor and shake. And chronologically, this also makes sense because it's after the earthquake. And our verse shares that the angel came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And it would have made no sense for the angel to roll away the stone if Jesus had not risen yet from the dead. Again, practically, the angel was used to roll away a very large storm er, storm stone and there's a, an account that this was a worry that was on their mind they 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 talked about this who is going to remove the stone and we get a, 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 we we see this in Mark's gospel in Mark chapter 16 verses 3 and 4 it says this uh, the ladies were saying to one another who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb Looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away. Oh, it was extremely large. And so, I want to help you with this and, and give you a picture of what a Jewish tomb may have looked like during the time of Christ. And so, I, I found some pictures that can assist our understanding. Some sources indicate that the average size and weight of the stone would be as follows it would be 4 to 6 feet in diameter and approximately 1 foot thick how much would such a stone weigh it's estimated between 1 to 2 tons okay 2 to 4000 pounds so all my ladies out there even my even my strong ladies you know i know you can move i know you can move some stuff i mean Victoria, you got some strength too. <laughs> but I think you would have saw their concern, right? How, how are we going to move that? Right? And these stones were specifically rounded. And so it was possible for a few men to, to move them and to roll them. But what you'll notice there, you'll see that rock right down at the, the bottom, is there would be these, these stones that were placed that when they were rolled in, they would lock the stone in place, and the weight of the stone would come to rest on on those stones. So, rolling a stone and putting it in place is one thing. Moving a stone to get into a grave is entirely another. And just like our grave sites today, they were designed to be a permanent resting place. Right, the person was dead, and they wanted to honor them, and they wanted to make sure that they were protected. If a tomb was sealed, this also means that there may have been another wall of rock outside the Rolling Stone constructed, and we we see this right. You see that wall on the on the outside. So when it talks about the reality that his tomb could have been sealed, this is what it appears to be indicating that Pilate said, "Yeah, we'll go ahead and have it sealed." So this was this was double double protection, right? But it also indicates that when he put his seal on it, which was custom for officials to do, when they had a signet ring, right? It represented the authority and they could seal an envelope with the authority and only the person who was on the receiving end of that package could open it up. The same is true as when a king would seal a tomb or a high governing official would seal a tomb. He's basically saying, only I have will we'll give authority on who can go in and out. And that's exactly what happened with Pilate. Well, in just a few moments, the ladies also see the angel's appearance. And this is going to give us some indication of of what um, the, the, the angel um, must have been like. Verse 3 in our passage describes his appearance this way. And his appearance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. Angel's appearance was obviously impressive. And the connection needs to be made to where he just came from. Where did he just come from? It's cornerstone. We can talk out loud. Where did he just come from? Heaven, right? Yeah, he just came from heaven. The, the brilliance of lightning and the whiteness of snow should make us mindful about the reality of where he just came from. He descended from heaven, according to our previous verse. There's nothing that indicates that he changed his attire. This is just one angel who came from the presence of the Lord in heaven. In Revelation Uh, 5.11, the apostle John describes the heavenly vision that he saw this way. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. Here, Mary Magdalene and Mary and these guards who we'll talk about in just a little bit, they saw the sight of just one. Imagine thousands upon thousands. And this should serve as a good prequel for us about what it's going to be like to behold in real time and in real life the presence of God. Right? If an angel is dressed in radiant splendor, enclosed like lightning. And is is seen in in with purity and holiness, and there's thousands upon thousands one can only imagine what it's going to look like when we stand before the Lord. certainly his holiness and purity should also make us mindful of standing in his presence. We'll notice the angel's impression that he leaves on the Roman guards who are keeping watch in verse 4. It says, the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. And I'm not sure what angels look like because I've not seen one yet. But I imagine that just like people, God created them in different sizes and different shapes. For some reason, I picture the Lord sending one of his Shaquille O'Neal type angels here to make an impression on these guards to, to, to let them see and boy did it have an impact angel also would have had significant strength to roll the large stone away from the tomb whichever angel the lord sent did make quite the impression angel instilled fear in them and it says they became like dead men many commentators believe that the soldiers literally passed out and then they went into a state of shock and this served a very practical purpose because the Roman guards would have prohibited the ladies from coming near the open tomb, right? They would, they, would have been, they would have probably died from fear just just the tomb itself being opened. And again, the tomb wasn't opened up so that the Lord could come out. The tomb was opened up so that the ladies could go in with, with, with the escort of angel. And so this angelic tactical diversion was all part of God's sovereign plan. Now we need to shift gears from what our angel looks like to what he says as he provides some very important instruction in our next three verses. Here we're going to see his compassion, his confirmation, and his commission. First, his compassion. In verse 5, he says to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. Listen, if armed guards, armed with weapons, some of the, 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 the fiercest men prepared for battle, Roman, Roman guards, just fainted from fear, I think it could be pretty probable that maybe the ladies were just a little fearful at the presence of the angel. And so the Lord had the angel instruct them. One of the first things that he had them had the angel say to them was, Do not be afraid. More than likely, the ladies also felt the massive earthquake during the Lord's resurrection. And then they come and they see the tomb was unsealed. And now an angel of the Lord clothed in radiant colors is speaking directly to them. Would this be more bad news after what they had just experienced in the last 48 hours? Not hardly. Not hardly. They were about to hear the greatest news that could ever be heard as God's Divine messenger drops a jaw dropping confirmation in verse 6. He says, Jesus is not here, for he has risen. Just as he said, Come see the place where he was lying. And I want you to notice the threefold progression of this confirmation. He's not here, he is risen. Oh, just in case you're doubting, come on, let's go. Let's go and, and let's look right at the very spot. And you know it was also very significant. It's easy for us to gloss over. God's, God's account on the resurrection is airtight. It is airtight. And he had, who, who did we mention earlier? Were the, the people that would have helped uh, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus to lay him to rest on that Friday evening? It was the same two women. So it made sense that someone who was there at the burial to be present at the resurrection for documentation. It could have been someone else. Perhaps Bible critics could argue that they were at the wrong tomb. Or perhaps... His body was moved to another tomb, but God orchestrated each detail so the account was airtight. And this allows our hearts to rejoice and stand confidently in the truths and the promises of Scripture. God will always fulfill what he promises to do. We can rejoice in his faithfulness. The resurrection was no small matter. The empty tomb has been scrutinized by liberal critics who attempt to discredit its validity and its historical ass- accuracy from the very beginning. And their best attempt is to claim just, just what the Jews had come up with and the lie that they were already spreading that, that we read. that Somebody must have stolen the body. Think about this logically. Both the Romans and the Jews, they want Jesus' body to disappear? No. They wanted it to stay right in that tomb. They wanted to prove that he was a fraud. And the best way to do that was to, have, to, to think about it for, was for, for him to still be lying there dead. And the, the disciples stealing the body also wouldn't make any sense because they needed the Lord to be alive to have their faith validated. A missing dead body would not help their cause either. What explanation, what explanation then do critics offer, you may ask? Historical scholar William Lane Craig had this to say when speaking of the critics. They are self-confessedly without any explanation to offer. There is simply no plausible, natural explanation today to account for Jesus' tomb being empty. If we deny the resurrection of Jesus, we are left with an inexplicable mystery. The resurrection of Jesus is not just the best explanation for the empty tomb. It's the only explanation in town. All God's people said, Amen. Amen. And the Apostle Paul had this to share when he was superintended by the Holy Spirit in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 13 through 17. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith is in vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still sins. What is the significance of the resurrection? The entire Christian faith relies on the validity and the accuracy and the account of the resurrection. Little did these women know just how vital their role in witnessing this event of the risen Savior would be. All of redemptive history would be defined by it. Now that they had witnessed what they had witnessed, the angel of the Lord also had a commission to give them. Look in verse 7. He finishes his instruction by saying, Go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. Behold, he is going ahead of you into Galilee, and there you will see him. Behold, I have told you. He's like the angel. He's being faithful to the Lord, and the angel's like, and I've told you, okay? Let's make no mistake. Who's he going to give his account to? The Lord, and the Lord you know, wants him to make sure that he communicated the message, and I just appreciate his heart to, to, to follow it to a T. It is appropriate that we call this commission because this reflects the heart of evangelism reflected in the great commission that we're going to see given later on at the end of this chapter. And this again should cause our hearts to rejoice. Our faith rests on the reality and the resurrection of Jesus that cannot be disputed successfully. Though this truth might be rejected by the world, no rejection is sustainable. The faithfulness and the veracity of God is on our side. And just as the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 3, verses 3 through 5, he says, What then? If some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? May it never be. Rather, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar, as it is written, that you, God, may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. And woe to the man who's going to judge God, right? That's that's a takeaway. And we can can celebrate the reality of God's faithfulness. We rejoice because we stand confident in the resurrection. Well, what would Our Lady's response in this gospel account that we're focused on be? Look at what verse 8 says. And they left the tomb quickly. With fear and great joy, and ran to report it to his disciples. Notice the response. It was immediate. Immediate. I don't know if there's another verse in all of Scripture that more accurately reflects the heartbeat of evangelism than this verse right here. That's how significant it is. So, so significant. We see three distinct aspects in the response their fear, their joy, and their urgency. First, it says they left the tomb with great fear. This is the Greek word phobos, It's, it's, it's from where we get our English word phobia. What were they afraid of? We might be tempted to think that maybe there was an instilled fear because of the events that they just witnessed, right? Massive earthquake. Maybe they're fearful because they showed up and the tomb has opened up. Maybe it was because they had a one-on-one encounter with a divine messenger who apparently looked pretty awesome, All right? All that has to be factored in. You know what I think? You know what their fear was? They had to go and report what had taken place to the disciples. Can you imagine what that task was going to be like? Uh, Hey guys, we just came back from the tomb, and you're not going to believe it, but the soldiers were passed out and in shock in front of the tomb, uh, tomb and and there was an angel, yes, an angel of the Lord who was sitting on top of the stone that he just rolled away, and he told us, he said, Christ is not here, he's dead. Or he's, he's not dead, he's risen. Yeah, they'd be all messed up like that too. He's not dead, he's, he's risen. And I want you to gain a sense of this because this was the, 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 the conflict that was going on within them. And they're going to have to say, and, and oh, by the way, he says, go and meet him in Galilee. Yes, that's right, I forgot, almost forgot to tell you. Behold, the angel told me. <laughs> Remind me, don't forget. Don't forget, tell them. The fear of man gripped their hearts. And you want to know what? They 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 thought that they weren't going to believe them and that they were going to think that they were foolish and that it didn't happen. And they were exactly right. They were exactly right. We don't see the response recorded in Matthew's gospel, but we see it in Luke 24, verses 11 and 12. And this is what it says about the, and notice the the disciples' response. But these words appeared to the disciples as nonsense, and they would not believe them. But Peter got up ran to the tomb stooping and looking in and he saw the linen wrappings only and he went away to his home marveling at what had happened. And here the very first witnesses to the resurrection faced a fear that is so common for us when we think about sharing the gospel. Aren't we afraid sometimes what people are going to think? aren't we afraid honestly aren't we afraid that they're going to think that we're foolish aren't we fearful in our hearts that they're they're not going to believe they're not going to believe what i have to say and that the whole thing just sounds foolish how do we overcome such fear well, verse 8 provides some insight It also says that they left the tomb with great joy. The Greek word for great here is mega. What can help us overcome the fear of man? It is our mega joy in Christ. Our joy in Christ and passion for him is what helps us overcome our fear of man and evangelism. This is why, friends, it is so important for us to draw near to the Savior, to find our ultimate joy in who he is, and to identify with that joy, and to fuel that joy within us. This is so important to see. When the fear of man, when the fear of man eclipses your joy for the Lord, you know what happens? You will not evangelize. That fear will, will cloud you. It will have you think about being man-centered in every way. What are they going to think? How are they going to respond? Right? And, and, and that, that fear can just cultivate. But when you have joy, when our focus becomes on our joy in the Lord, what can happen? What happens when, when our joy eclipses our fear? we can look at what happened to the ladies. They ran to report it to his disciples. And the same is true for us. God uses our joy to overcome our fear. And he also uses it as a testimony to unbelievers. You know the Baptist church that I visited before my heart was converted? I specifically remember people singing songs enthusiastically joyfully and i've shared this before they they, they had such joy when they were singing the songs and to be honest it annoyed me it 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 bothered me i was just like why are these i I, you know i was like why are they so joyful you want to know why because they were saved. Because they, they were, their lives had been resurrected to live for the risen one. They, they, they were saved and that joy was real and it could not be contained because they had to sing. And maybe you're here, some, somebody here, you're here as a guest this morning and what you saw transpire earlier in the service and you see um, a lot of people around Maybe your experience is just like mine. (laughs) What are they so, really, what are they so happy about? What is kind of weird? They're looking up at a PowerPoint screen, singing songs to someone who isn't here. What is it? What is it? Talk to you, dear friend. I want you to look into the deep recesses of your heart and and ask yourself, is my joy in the Lord? And and if there's not something within you that would move and compel your heart to sing songs because of the salvation is yours, that's, that's God's love for you. That's God's grace for you. That's God's desire to change you. He wants... To change you. And today can be the day, dear friend. Will you believe? Will you turn to Christ and trust in Him completely? Will you bend the knee to His love and to His Lordship so that your life will be changed forever? Listen to me. Listen to me. If you ask Him to forgive you, He will. If you ask him to save you, he will. He will. If you ask him to take over your life and to govern your life so that it can be fruitful and that you can live in such a way that can bring honor and glory to his name and that you have no fear after death, he will do it. He will do it. And he'll also allow your heart to rejoice in him just look at the encouraging encounter that the ladies have with the Lord in our final verses. And behold, Jesus met them and greeted them. And they came up and they took hold of his feet and worshiped him. And then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Don't fear. Go and take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee. And there they will see me. Do you think the Lord knew the fear that Mary Magdalene and Mary were facing? Without a doubt. Without a doubt. And the end of verse 9 describes um, describes what takes place. The Lord Jesus Christ wanted to put an end to all doubt and strengthen their witness and their testimonies. So he greets them in purpose, on purpose. And here we see the hearts of the ladies on full display. And they came up and took a hold of his feet and worshipped him. They couldn't even stand. They fell at his feet in homage. The Greek word translated worship can also be also mean to bow down in allegiance, and it's the same word Matthew used earlier in his account back in Matthew two two, speaking of the Magi who came to the e- from the east, and they said, "Where is he who was born King of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east, and we have come to worship him." And after Jesus comforted Mary Magdalene, Mary. After they responded, embracing his feet and worshiping him, the Lord reiterates the instructions. They had been given previously by the angel. Verse 10, do not be afraid. Go and take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee, and there they will see me. And what happened at this point onward is the testimony of them speaking about the risen, resurrection, about the Christ. Uh, The Lord's resurrection would continue all the way to this day. And it would spread like wildfire. wildfire. And between the verbal testimonies and the fact that Jesus appeared to hundreds and hundreds of people, the resurrection could not, nor could it ever be disproven. In 1 Corinthians 15 verses 4-7 through God's word records that Jesus was raised on the third day according to the scriptures and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve and after that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time. And then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. Praise God for an airtight resurrection account. And so it's true with us. just as with others who have been reached out with the gospel, as people have shared the resurrection account. We need to share the gospel while affirming the truth of the resurrection. And God in his grace has allowed us to believe. And now, just like Mary and Mary, who saw the risen Lord, the next thing they had to do was to share this news and to walk in obedience to his instructions. And this is what we are called to do as well. And what does this look like practically? It's called the Great Commission. And it's called going and making disciples. See it talked about at the end of this chapter. Not only does God allow us to rejoice in his resurrection, but he gives us a new purpose to make disciples for his glory. Well, I trust these five details of the resurrection account have encouraged your heart to rejoice conclude our time, I wanted to end with a quote written by J.C. Ryle, who had this to share about this final verse. He says, let us notice finally the gracious message which the Lord sent to the disciples after his resurrection. He appeared in person to the women who had come to honor his body. Last at the cross, first at the tomb, they were the first privileged to see him after he rose. And to them, he gives commission to carry tidings to his disciples. His first thought is for his little scattered flock. Go tell my brethren. There is something deeply touching in those simple words. My brethren. They deserve a thousand thoughts. Eek, frail, erring as the disciples were, Jesus still calls them his brethren. He comforts them as Joseph did his brethren, who had sold him, saying, I am your brother, Joseph. Much as, the disciples, much as the disciples had come short of their profession, sadly, they had yielded to the fear of man, and they are still his brethren. Glorious as he was in himself, a conqueror over death and hell and the grave, the Son of God is still meek and lowly of heart. He calls his disciples brethren. Let us turn from the passage with rejoicing thoughts. If we know anything true of the faith, let us see in the words of Christ an encouragement to trust and to not be afraid. Our Savior is the one who never forgets his people. He pities their infirmities. He does not despise them. He knows their weakness. does not cast them away. Our great sympathetic high priest is also our elder brother. May we all continue to rejoice in the reality of the resurrection today and all the days ahead, all the days ahead. And we're going to have an opportunity right after I pray to, to sing a couple songs just to just express our hearts to the Lord of how grateful, how truly grateful we are for the hope that is ours And for those who are not in Christ, I, I hope that the Lord used today and he, he, he's waiting for you, friend. He's waiting for you to come to him with all of your heart, to trust in him with all of your heart and to give your life to him. And he will use it. He will use it for his glory and for his namesake. Please pray with me. Gracious Father, you have allowed us I pray to see with greater clarity this account, this amazing account, really of the first evangelist to preach a fulfilled gospel. Mary Magdalene and Mary. And Lord, it is true that their fear is our fear. But at the same time, their great joy is also our great joy. My prayer, Father, is that you would help us to always find our ultimate joy in you that would help us to overcome our fears. Fear of man. Fear of what anyone would think. Even fear of becoming a Christian if there's someone here today that would like to start a life in you and to live for you and your namesake. That you would help them to overcome that fear and that you'll lead them. You'll guide them. You'll direct their steps every course of the way. And you'll bring new people into their life that will help strengthen them in the faith. So Father, those of us who have been strengthened in the faith and who have been discipled, we pray that you'll continue to use us in great measure to make disciples for your namesake, that will continue to exalt Christ, exalt the gospel, and that will trust your word to help us grow and to help others grow. Thank you for this time. Thank you for this day. We ask that you'll bless every family as we celebrate together. We give you praise for it in Jesus' name.